Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Are UFOs reaching out to us from beyond the stars or from beyond the grave? What is the ecology of the paranormal? What is death? Hello and welcome to the 665th edition of... 965. Sorry, geez, 955. Don't cheat us. We worked hard for this. I'm sorry. It's one of those days where <laughs> I, I like to read the nines upside down. So the this is the 965th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, coming to you from WON, AM and FM Radio in Winsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live on YouTube and via TuneIn.com. I'm Ben, and those lively questions came from my co-host, partner in the Paranormal Adventures, and dad, Paul. And today, uh, your questions can be sent to... Uh, Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com, or you can call us from anywhere, 401-766-1240, that's from anywhere, and also you can message us via, via Facebook Messenger as well. The prolific author and co-author of eight books that I know of, Joshua Cutchin has appeared on a variety of uh, paranormal programs discussing his work, including Coast to Coast AM and Mysterious Universe. Joshua has been featured on the hit history channel show Ancient Aliens, and is a recurring roundtable guest on Where Did the Road Go? podcast. He speaks at many paranormal conferences. Uh, his most recent work in two volumes is Ecology of Souls, A New Mythology of Death and the Paranormal, that was released just two months ago. It's the subject of our discussion today. Joshua's website, joshuacutchin.com, C-U-T-C-H-I-N.com. So Joshua Cutchin, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. It's great way to be here. Way to spend my Sunday afternoon getting it off to a good start. Hey, you know we we do the best we can. We we hope it stays as a good start. <laughs> so with that said, let's start with the title of your latest book. Um, what is a myth? That's a great question. And at one point, I I sort of thought that the subtitle "A New Mythology of of Death and the Paranormal" was kind of a little bit pretentious, <laughs> but. When this evolved to become sort of a holistic way that I have come to view these topics, I was like, okay, well, this is kind of does this, this kind of does fill that role of, of a mythology. And for me, a mythology or a myth would be something that is um, a way to understand certain truths or a way to interface with the world that may or might, may not have a literal objective reality to it, but is still nonetheless metaphorically true. So what this was was a real effort to sort of gather together a bunch of disparate threads that I've noticed throughout the paranormal and try to combine them into something that kind of functions like, you know, a, a working uh, model with which to with which to view all things paranormal. As with all things paranormal, though, you know, there are plenty of outliers that just don't want to fit. But this, I think, scoops up a lot of different things that have sort of puzzled me over the years. So let's let's take a I've you said a lot there and I'm I'm ready to <laughs> dig into it because I'm all about metaphorical truth. And I've I've really been digging into that myself over the last few years. Brett Weinstein's whole whole thing with with that. So that's that's kind of been yeah, right. That's <laughs> I'm glad we're we're on the same same train of yeah. thought. Because I, I think I was explaining this to somebody at the the Exeter UFO Festival a few weeks ago. I, we got talking about this. So I was saying, well, I was like, well, my opinions sort of changed, but only in the nuance of it. And I, I think really the problem, in my opinion, with with modern paranormal research is the nuances of it, because we we want to explain every single corner, corridor, thing, everything that happens, and, and you just can't. 
really the only thing you can kind of find as a common denominator is the recurring patterns over time. And that's is is that is that sort of the realm that you're hanging around in? I really do think so. I mean, I I, I struggle with what my work is because I try to write from a really academic standpoint, but I think a lot of people would say that it's a spiritual or religious framework. And I guess over the years I've sort of sifted and winnowed my way into that sort of academic stance, um, which does view a lot of things um, through that sort of quasi-religious lens. I mean, I, I think that a very strong argument can be made that modern UFO belief, modern UFO, the way that we interact with this stuff is primarily – um, a spiritual discipline. A, a metaphor that I use in the book is that uh, is that you know there's this idea of Prisca theologia, the idea that there was once sort of a first religion or a first way that we interfaced with the divine. And I argue that the Prisca euphologia has always been spiritual. I mean, you can go back to spiritualism and theosophy, which have their roots all in this early way that we used to think of UFOs, and even in UFOs and fiction, other planets and whatnot, were always rooted in that sort of spiritual discipline. So this modern sort of technological fetish that we see with, uh, you know, obsessions over propulsion systems and anti-gravity and stuff like that is really sort of the newcomer on the scene and really is sort of a, a newer interpretation of the way that we've interacted with these phenomena over generations. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd argue that the... That the the paranormal or or let's say the supernatural quote unquote could be the mythology for the modern day materialist because essentially its whole its whole thing is to try and find these outliers these stories these things that exist on the outside of of society and it and we try to make it fit into this very flat sort of Hegelian worldview where we we try to take everything that's that's you know celestial divine and just shove it into our two-dimensional reality and categorize it. I mean, yeah, I think there's something really pressing about that in the fact that basically the other world, whatever it was among certain cultures, you know, sometimes it was a, a land over the mountain range or it was a land beyond the sea or it was, you know, sometimes in the heavens, has completely been transposed to the stars. And you see this, you know, even amongst, you know, I always turn to media to get sort of a barometer on, the way that people are thinking about this, and you'll find, you know, oh, we need to have people have superpowers. Let's make it a meteor, because <laughs> space <laughs> is still this giant question mark where anything can happen. And I think that a lot of people who are engaged in the materials paradigm really shift their magical thinking to outer space without really thinking about the repercussions of what that suggests and how that ties into these older, uh, again, mythologies. Hmm. That that is actually really interesting. That's a really that's a really fun way to think about it, and I the, I, I use fun in a very light way, <laughs> but it but it, it's 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 a fascinating sort of um, perspective on it because it's we like to think as modern modern people that we're oh you know we've moved beyond the need for all this stuff when I, I really I really think because I think G.K. Chesterton had a point where we need to think mythologically because it, it's important. You know the stories that we participate in are very important, and it's it's it it doesn't leave us. It's almost like imprinted on our DNA almost. So we we yearn for these things that are outside of ourselves, even if it's just space. <laughs> no, I I completely agree. And you know, having two twin boys has sort of reframed a lot of the way that I think about these things because I've always been a fan of media that deconstructs ideas. You know, I loved Watchmen, and I love it when mm. the the princess saves herself and stuff, but. You keep deconstructing things, and at some point when you have a new life that emerges on Earth, like my boys have, 
Um, I kind of want to feed them the construction before I give them the deconstruction, you know, because these myth themes are so old and, you know, your mileage may vary on Jung and Joseph Campbell, but I think that a lot of those speak to these archetypes that you end up seeing in your life if you're, if you're paying attention to them. Um, and, you know, I think that we, if we can pay attention to these things, they suggest some stuff to us. You know, one of the things that I was really fascinated with this that sort of emerged as I was working on Ecology of Souls was the the idea that the UFO, the whole UFO milieu is a transportation metaphor, right? It's all about transportation, things coming here, things going there. And if you start to look at that, at that through the motif of, you know, ships to the other world, then you sort of wind up in this death territory very, very quickly. Yeah, it's like the river sticks. Mm-hmm. Hundred percent, and this is something that you know Jung actually talked about in his Flying Saucer essay. You mentioned uh, he compared in passing uh, UFOs to a quote unquote a sort of Charon figure, but uh, I don't think anybody really quite unpacked that. You know, you've got stuff throughout the ufological literature that's been hinting at this. A lot of Whitley Strieber's work, um, you know, Anne famously said this has something to do with what we call death. And uh, it's also, you know, a connection that I think haunts the background of Passport to Magonia. You know, I I adore Jacques Vallée's work. Oh, um, so do and we. I, and, and, I, and I think that he, he did a lot of great work in, in showing that the modern UFO contact scenario um, seems to be a reworking of that fairy fate scenario. But there's something that kind of gets left on the table in that discussion, which is, well, how did... How did these people think of fairies? You know, um, what would a 13th century passport to Magonia look like? It would be probably just drawing connections between fairies and the human dead. Can I? Uh, do you mind if I read a quote from the introduction to your book? No, I'm, no, it's fine. Okay, uh, quote, <clears throat> and I read this not just because it's a great quote, but because uh, the man you refer to, Whitley Strieber, is, is next week's guest on the show by some amazing coincidence. <laughs> uh, after his 1987 book, Communion, became a pop culture touchstone, author and experiencer Whitley Strieber was inundated with correspondence from readers detailing their encounters with the visitors, presumably extraterrestrial abductors. After reading thousands of letters and compiling correlations, Whitley's wife, Anne, whom you just referred to, Joshua, jotted at the top of a yellow sheet of observations, this has something to do with what we call death. And you, you've kind of taken it from there. Let me turn that around a bit. Did it have to do, is everything we're talking about having to do with death and, and, and you bring in the UFO connection about the death experience and the whole thing? Or does it have to do with life? I think that's a very fantastic criticism. <laughs> and it's actually... I got through the second pass with my editor, Barbara Fisher, who runs the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. And Barbara said, you know, it's not really about death. It really is about life and, and, and sort of honestly, you know, people are welcome to disagree with this interpretation, but the cyclicality of life and reincarnation, which I think there's a lot of really fantastic evidence for stuff from like Ian Stevenson and Jim Tucker at the University of Virginia. But she said, you know, this is really about life and, and that's really what it ends up being. Um, but it's two sides of, of the same coin, really. I mean, you can't talk about death, honestly, without talking about, you know, reproduction, which is obviously another thing that these phenomena seem to be obsessed with across all different sorts of modalities. So, yeah, I mean, it, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's about death. I'm sorry, it's about life. But death is the sort of gateway for, was the sort of gateway for me to to draw that comparison and make that understanding. But I think you're absolutely correct. And in a sense, that maybe even death is sort of a false distinction that we just have made as 
a race as a as a species. Yeah, no, no, I, I certainly get that because one of the biggest questions we get is, you know, what happens after you die? <laughs> and everybody says, well, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And I always say, well, maybe nothing happens when you <laughs> yeah. die. You know, I mean, uh, Ben? I heard this really interesting quote. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Jonathan Pajot or not. He uh, he hangs around with Brett Weinstein, and he's in that that whole sort of area. He's a very interesting guy. Um, he's, a, he's a Canadian guy that's that that he makes uh, icons and stuff. Very very fascinating guy, and I like the way he thinks about symbolism. He made this he made this point, and I, I couldn't get out of my head for a while, and I still can't. That all technology is there to to basically negate death, and all all of it is 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 essentially there to try and and push away death. And he, he cites a lot of examples that it's like, well, you know, something as simple as like a sword, right, or medicine, or really anything that that we've built, whether it's a house or something like that, it's there to try and, and build up ourselves. And really, we as humans sort of have two motives, uh, either to expand our, ourselves or to protect ourselves, that could even extend to having having families, things like that. That it's really it's it's sort of an expansion of of ourselves, or you know, sort of like a, a protection of it. And I, I thought about that for a really long time because what is something that we really focus on a lot today? The newest technological development. What you know, we we think about. Oh well, you know, we have the newest iPhone, or the newest smartphone, or the newest whatever. You know, we we have all these things, we have all this technology, and I think something that really revealed a lot about the modern day zeitgeist is is what happened during the COVID nineteen pandemic, where I don't think I've ever seen people become more deathly afraid of something. Maybe it's because I, I haven't lived through a pandemic before, so we'll we'll <laughs> I'll put that out there first as a preference as the preface. But it, it was it was it was so fascinating because you could really sort of see that there was the way people reacted to things was so interesting because it showed how deathly afraid we were of death, mm. you know. And and we came up with all these new sort of ways and and processes and technologies to track it, to try and find it, to try and itemize death. And did it work? No, but <laughs> but, but we tried it anyway, and we're still trying, and we're 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 doing our best. Not to say that medical technology is bad; it's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that over overall, there's this tremendous fear of death that we've that we've really really seen over the last few years, kind of manifest in culture. No, I, I think I'm immediately put in the mindset of this old uh, Ry Cooter album called Paradise and Lunch, and one of the songs is "Feeling Good, Feeling Good, All the Money in the World Spent on Feeling Good." <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there's, I mean, I think that a lot of anxieties that were sort of free floating got sort of glommed onto a lot of what we've seen in the past couple of years, um, and yeah, that's something that I sort of address in the afterword of the book because I tried to write this from a non-Christian perspective. I am a practicing Christian, but it was important to me to present this again from an academic standpoint. But the afterword, I allowed myself to breathe and sort of share my thoughts. And you know, at one point, I say like, okay, you know, I prefer not to get eaten by a monster, but is that really the worst thing? You know, is that really worse than you know letting down your family? You know, is that really worse than than slipping into the throes of alcoholism because you're scared of the fact that the pandemic might you know affect you and the way affect the world? Um, you know, speaking from experience on that, mm. um, these are these are things that are infinitely worse than death. And if you look back through, um, if you look back through 
a lot of these different traditions, and I would argue um, through a lot of these different contact modalities, there is this sense of dying to death as being one of the best things that you can obtain. Now, whether you retain that through, you know, religious study or meditation or the Eleusinian mysteries or from, you know, an entheogen uh, session uh, going into an altered state of consciousness or a near-death experience or an alien abduction, because that's also shown to sort of diminish that fear of death or even, believe it or not, some cryptid encounters. This is something that you see time and time again. It's this opening up to this idea of wonder and that, you know, death isn't something that we should really even be as concerned about it because you're not going to delay it. I mean, you're not going, you might delay it, but you're not going to, you know, eliminate the possibility. And there are worse things and there are bigger things out there that seem to act with, um, seem to act on the outside of those constraints that we experience in our lives. Mm, I guess I guess with that all all of this this prefacing and context which is <laughs> infinitely important I I might add what is the ecology of souls well, I've always been a big fan of uh, Terrence McKenna as a thinker and just as someone who pushes the boundaries of my own thinking. I make it a point once a year to listen to a couple of lectures to see how I've changed in the way I interpret his stuff. But well, he was you know, very much a fan of dimethyltryptamine, which was this endogenously produced compound that is also a very potent psychedelic drug and he would describe the space that you go into which sounds very much like some of the spaces that people go into during their near-death experiences um to the extent that some scientists have suggested that near-death experiences are just a dmt trip that's neither here nor there right now but um he said that you know one of i'll do my, i'll do the voice one of the most conservative possibilities that you're sort of faced with is that this might be just as the shamans once said that you're interfacing with ancestors in an ecology of souls and you know i don't know if i don't know if he originated that term but um i find it to be a really i find that that term does a lot of heavy lifting if that makes any sense because it implies relationships and it implies sort of this uh baseline energetic essence that i think all life and if you want to extend that to an animist perspective things that we don't normally recognize as life are all sort of swirling around on the other side of this very thin veil that separates us from that other other area well i think we we are at a, a tremendous disadvantage as as modern day human beings because I heard this definition in a lecture that I, that a long time ago um, that I, I really it made a lot of sense to me and and maybe it's because of cultural background or or whatever not really entirely sure but one of the biggest issues I always had with 19th century spiritualism is is that it just was like well you know it was just a tremendous reaction to scientific materialism so it just negated all of it and it just kind of was like well it's either all intuitive or all reason you get nothing in between <laughs> yeah. so it's like okay well you know there's more of the human experience than just that so this definition i heard was it was in in a in a talk i heard about second temple judaism and and how how sort of how the ancient ancient world kind of viewed bodies and and the sort of definition that they gave was it was a not not just like you know flesh blood things it was a they referred to it as a nexus of powers and potentialities um that if you ever if you ever like you know got you know, the bible's probably the first thing that pops to mind but you can even find it in all sorts of ancient stories where they refer to you know the gods as having bodies and they'll say, well, you know, they, you know, they they talk to the face of this guy or whoever, and the face refers to, um, you know, the ability to speak. Eyes refer to the ability to see. Feet refer to the ability to move. 
and all of this stuff and all of these things that we have are just powers that that we that we have or lose or gain or whatever over time and sort of like the flesh and bones body is like sort of an aspect of the body but not the body it allows us to interact with the physical world but isn't you know completely you know the body in and of itself so the the idea of of there being um you know the that the the even even the gods or spirits or whatever have bodies mm-hmm. because they you know they they're able to interact with the world around us it's 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 interesting because i i heard that definition and i didn't forget it and the idea of having an ecology of souls right it it would it makes sense to me in that there's it's i don't know it is an interesting term it is it is kind of a catch all isn't it that it <laughs> <laughs> that it's it's like there is a is a is a space in which you know say you lose a loved one um and and you know they're they're gone you know but they're not gone you know it's like I I I always like to say it's like a like a like an it's like a web of, we're in a web of relationships and it doesn't just end just because someone moves out of town doesn't mean that they're gone you know it's just yeah they're ex- existing in a different way I suppose so is no, that it, is that kind of on the track <laughs> yeah yeah it, it it is in part and and just the idea that I think that. I mean, so I end up flirting with, like, this idea of monism, right? This idea that all distinctions are arbitrary and everything is sort of one thing, um, which is something that you see in a lot of the, you know, UFO experiencer literature. You know, we are one with the one that is all, um, it is the me within the, you know, which I would argue there are certain scriptural interpretations that sort of lead you down that path yeah. in some, in, to some degree. Um, but, you know, it, it does, I, I do think it's interesting, this idea that, I mean, I know it sounds trite at this point, but uh, energy is never, you know, lost or created. It just transforms. And it's interesting to me that even some of the more atheistic models um, that you find where they're talking about, you know, we are star stuff and this idea that our atoms and molecules from a distant star might someday wind up in, you know, your child or something. Um, it's basically reincarnative in scope, right? I mean, it, it's basically sort of a reincarnative philosophy. Um, so I, I do think that that's interesting, too, this idea of this conservation. And I guess conservation would be a pretty apt uh, term if we're talking about ecologies of souls, right? Yeah, I guess that, I guess that does make a, lot, make a lot of sense. So I, I suppose, um, you know, you probably have had to deal with the, the idea that uh, how... How how do we you know let's say I don't want to I don't want to take you know DMT how do we interact with this at all times is there is there sort of like is this just a a, de- a definite space in which this just exists or is it just kind of one of those things where it's omnipresent? Well, you know, I so I'm with you on that, right? I was just having a conversation with somebody about this the other day, and it's like, man, I'd need to be in a clinical sitting with like, setting with like you know everybody standing by and and I doubt myself like I don't know if I'd come back from that trip so uh, but that is a good question I do think it's sort of imbricated on our environment if you look at a lot of interpretations of the other world especially ones from like you know Wales or even you know just Western Europe in general you'll find that there is this idea that it somehow coexists amongst ours now you know there's a a string of thought that would call these dimensions in my opinion if it ain't broke don't fix it just call it the other world and be done with it um i found a really interesting conversation between hans holzer and uh, brad steiger where they were having this exact same argument um and, and i think hans holzer was like so how is a dimension any different than you know the other world or the afterlife and steiger's like well i guess you're right um but yeah, that's a good question, and I think one of the key components for sort of separating this out is to look for that 
time compression or dilation, depending on what happens. Missing time, I think, is the hallmark of whether or not you've been somewhere. Um, because, you know, it's interesting to me that you have a lot of these ghost stories that also fit a lot of these other contact modalities. In fact, that's one of the main thrusts of the book, is that, like, look, these ghost stories look a lot like the UFO stories and the fairy stories, et cetera, et cetera, even some of the cryptid stories. But you don't find missing time in ghost stories. And I think that's because there isn't, you know, a real, um, a real, you're not going over into that space. Something else is coming into our space. Uh, the only example of a missing time uh, ghost story that I could find was something that read very much like a time slip where somebody stepped back in time and then had two hours missing. So I think that that missing time component is really crucial. So to that extent, like I think that the fact that every experience doesn't have missing time is probably a key indicator for whether or not you stayed in our reality and something else has come over, which might explain why a lot of uh, cryptid encounters don't have missing time. Now, having said that, a lot do. I found it's, it's something that crops up in Bigfoot stories more than you'd think, but but I think that, you know, if somebody sees an extraterrestrial or a fairy or something and they don't have that missing time, that means that that, whatever that thing is, to not put a label on it, is stepping into our reality, which sort of kind of gives you this fun little model that I like to play with in my head of, you know, is there, uh, you know, a, a fairy shaman on the other side that's conducting a trance and entering our space? Or is there, you know, a bunch of Bigfoot in their college dorm room smoking DMT <laughs> and crossing over? I don't know. But I think that might be that might be a useful um it might be a useful sort of rule of thumb when looking at whether or not something is coming here or we're going there. Well, I think that's a good place to take our mid-show break. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 AM, 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Black Star River Valley. We'll be right back with our fascinating conversation with Joshua Cutchin in just a second, so stick with us. Are you tired of the same old dishing and depressing chatter in the morning radio? Then don't get down. Get up with me, Dave Richards, from 5 to 8 a.m. each weekday. Fun, the trivia quiz and interesting stories and your favorite tunes by your request. Don't get down. Get up with Dave. Weekday mornings only on ON, AM, and FM. You can depend on us for public service. ON Radio. And welcome back to Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. It's WON Radio AM and FM. And our great guest today is Joshua Cutchin, with whom I am about to, dis- to, to, to disagree. If I'm uh, <laughs> Joshua, um, at least in my experience, uh, there are plenty of ghost, quote-unquote, situations that do involve time. I think it's all about time. I think that uh, we uh, step during a paranormal experience as much into its world as it steps into ours. Uh, we often find ghosts uh, afraid of us because they think we're ghosts haunting them. I think uh, uh, an example I've cited on the air recently, uh, our experience with the mutterers, as we call it, in 1971 in the uh, famous Pomfret, Connecticut uh, case, that was all about time. We thought it was all about dead people, but it was all about time. Um, and, you know, we've spoken about that elsewhere, but I think that we participate in the experience as much as whatever we're, you know, recipients of participate in it. So th- but that's just my two cents, maybe I'm wrong, but... Uh, no, I, no I, I completely agree with you. Um, and one of the things that sort of, when I was facing this amount of information to try to collate was I just said, look, I'm not going to try to redefine the afterlife or ghosts or time. We're just going to have to go with you know, 
the simplest interpretation of those things. But I think that a lot of these ghost stories seem to have something to do with time. And honestly, it breaks my brain. Um, you know, it does, I, I, cause it goes against everything we're, you know, programmed to believe about it. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it, it, it sort of unchains cause and effect in, in, in ways that I think we're all really uncomfortable with. I, I guess my thing was, was not that there isn't some, something to do with time. I think that time is really kind of perhaps even central to a lot of this stuff. I guess what I was specifically getting at is like the perception of times being like, oh, it only felt like 15 minutes and it was actually two hours. I, I have not found that as much in the ghost literature as you do in other contact modalities. But again, I am open to being staying, standing corrected on that. I do think that, you know, you look at the reactions of some of these people and, in, in, or some of these quote-unquote spirits and ghost stories and it does seem like we're coming back in time and of course then that opens up the question to like well should we go back to these older historical accounts and see if maybe they were in they were seeing you know a, a person in strange garb and, and that was actually like you know a, a time where, where, or a moment when the two time streams intersected or something along those lines i think that's a very valid point yeah well why don't we go to a question uh, we have uh, our usual very thoughtful questions from peter shelley in bogota colombia and, Ben, if you would be so kind. Sure thing. And uh, Peter writes to us. Uh, recently you mentioned Konstantin Radove. Forgive me if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. That's right. Oh, wow, look at that. Your Latvian is in your future. Ah, yes. Wunderbar. Anyway, um, what have you discovered about his work, and have you personally done EVB, EVP experiments? So the Konstantin Radove thing is something that really blew my mind a bit um, because I was always familiar with him in case anybody doesn't wonder doesn't know he's he was an EVP pioneer and he was sort of at the forefront of this and he's somebody who continues to show up in a lot of EVPs um, especially of his former colleagues like Sarah Estep there's if you just do a little bit of poking around the internet you can find some voice <laughs> some voicemails or some answering machine messages I guess that was the era that route of a left on his uh, his answering machine um the idea that he's still as much interested in EVP after he has passed away as he was when he was alive. What boggles my mind is that, um, and, you know, maybe you can or have talked to Whitley about this, but in his book, A New World, um, Whitley claims to have been approached in the middle of the night by two individuals who uh, basically revealed to him the mechanism by which his implant works. And it seems to have much more to do with afterlife communication than it does any sort of extraterrestrial agenda. And they told him that it was Konstantin Radove who had designed the implant from beyond the grave, <laughs> which oh, is an dear. idea... Well, yeah, well, but but it speaks to exactly what, what you were talking about with time and with, like, you know, there being no, no, no real actual transition, like, not necessarily being something different about the other side, which is a very ancient idea, the idea that the other world would continue to progress and look quite like our world, almost in sort of this mirror universe fashion. I mean, you know, the Egyptian farmers still had to get up and farm after they passed away. Um, you'll find some allusions uh, to, the, to the Chinese afterlife during Imperial China as being the empire plowed under. And, you know, you'll also find that throughout all the fairy uh, literature as well, the idea that fairies would laugh at birth, uh, sorry, laugh at funerals and cry at birth. So it's this idea that's this re revolving door that somehow can, you know, continue to evolve technologically and there might be even technological developments on the other side that are somehow somehow brought into our reality, which is 
you know, it's it's an idea that sort of reframes the technological aspects of, of the UFO question in some interesting, if if unbelievable, ways. And it's also an idea that's been with ufology for a very, very long time. You can find allusions to this idea as far back as the 1950s, at least. So that's the route of a connection, which is just wild. I've done a little bit of EVP work myself, um, not as much as I want to. Uh, I'm kind of making a shift after having written Ecology of Souls into doing more experiential stuff. But I, I have... Uh, been to uh, Waverly Hills Sanitarium, and uh, we caught, I believe, a little girl sneezing, even though there was no one else around. So I think it's still a, a fantastic tool. I don't know the mechanism by which it works, and obviously there's a lot of oral pareidolia that happens when you listen to those, but some of the EVP stuff is extremely compelling to me. Well, uh, Ben, uh, given your academic degree, you might want to engage on the subject of EVPs. Well, I, I, uh, well, I guess not it's... to tell you what to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dad. Um, I, I do. I don't know. I'm my 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 sort of whole thing with EVPs is is still kind of. I, I'm I'm on the fence about it. I've I've heard some stuff that's pretty convincing, and on the other hand, I've heard some stuff that's just you know that's just straight up you know audio pareidolia. Mm-hmm. I've I you know I'm 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 on the fence about it mechanically because it's. It, it it doesn't make a ton of sense in, in if I think about it with just you know regular regular physics of how sound works because arguably if it's picked up on on a microphone we should be able to hear it it's mm. that's that's kind of my thing although although I will say I'll take a little bit of a liberty with the uh, Soviet filmmaker Sergei Eisenstein who was the father father of modern day editing techniques. I might add. So if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't have a- any any modern movies, or at least editing as we understand it today. Um, he he did have a really interesting theory uh, that was that he called the Kino Gloss, which he meant the camera eye was the most perfect eye, and um, he had this idea that the camera could see things that we couldn't. So the way that he he made his films was he would he would basically take like five minute like vignette or five second like vignettes of things and then just like shove them together and he referred to it as montage and the idea was that the camera would reveal the story and I'm gonna take that and I'm gonna apply it to this in that perhaps the microphone is is hearing things that we are choosing to not hear or or perhaps it's um it's so acute and so sensitive because our, you know, human hearing is, is dying all the time. Because <laughs> the, right. the, the little, the, the little hearing cells in our ears are constantly dying and you don't have perfect hearing unless you're like an infant. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's a lot of overlap between people who are rock stars and who love to ghost hunt in my experience. <laughs> yeah. Shot anyway. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that the, what you sort of led with there is one of the most important things, which is like, being on the fence about it, I think it's important to be on the fence about a lot of this stuff. My main problem with these paranormal communities is that people don't make use of their interesting if true basket. You know, they don't have a gray area where they just file stuff away and say, mm. well, interesting, it doesn't prove this, it doesn't disprove that. You know, there's some stuff that's great and some stuff that's not great, and there's a wide gulf in between that I personally fit a lot of this stuff into. And, you know, I think EVP would be one of those. I suppose that, that if, I, I could, if I was a little bit better versed, mount a counter argument that if you look at things like, you know, uh, the way that certain mediums allegedly, again, a lot of, a lot of room for, for, uh, chicanery in there, but the way that certain mediums would allegedly imprint 
their faces in a wax, uh, not a wax canvas, but a wax, you know, medium inside of a cabinet or something through supposedly the, the power of thought, that maybe a similar mechanism might be at play with something like EVP. Um, but, you know, I'm kind of being a bit of an apologist and kind of gilding the lily a bit with that. So, no, it's, it's a very good point. That's a very good point. And, uh, and again, I'm kind of with you. There's a lot of room for that interesting of true in there. Uh, do we have a second question from Peter? We do, and I was just about to, to hop into that. Uh-huh. So, so Peter's second question is, in a recent interview, you mentioned planning uh, to participate in a CE5 uh, for the Worldwide Metaphysical Tribe Conference. Please share what happened. Dead as a doornail. <laughs> um, I continued. I continued my fine my fine tradition of being paranormal kryptonite. Um, it was it was it was kind of humorous um, afterwards uh, because you know when you do those and and honestly like I think some of the methodology in there is really interesting. You know I can I can be sort of skeptical about the framing of extraterrestrials and you know realize that there's some cultural baggage that creeps into there. But I think that you know that's as valid a way to try to find something else as setting up giant satellite receivers. So we did our CE5. It was kind of a cloudy night that might have impacted it. Um, I was, you know, I felt like, you know, going into this, you've got to just completely be as open as possible if you want anything to happen. So I was really open and really positive and just nothing. Um, we did have a moment afterwards where somebody was like, look at this. And it was a really kind of scary photo of, of this face, which looked like it was in like this Dickensian sort of jacket. And we passed it around. We're like, oh my goodness, that's, that's really, I don't, that doesn't look like anybody here until somebody was like, oh yeah, that's Stacy Clark. That's her winter jacket. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> Sorry, Stacy, that we thought you were a, you know, Dickensian goblin. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so it was, it was not, it was a dud for me. Okay. Which is part of the reason I want to get back into doing more experiential stuff because I've had some stuff happen, but it usually happens when I'm not looking for it. Now, uh, let me take us down uh, 20 or 30 pegs to uh, maybe a more, not vulgar, but level of the people, okay, with some of these concepts. In 2003, uh, I was a speaker at the uh, West Virginia Paranormal Conference. Now, Bud Hopkins was also there. It was really great. And we turned it into a family vacation. Uh, was Ben's first paranormal conference, mm. and, my, and his mom, who never goes to these things, was pretty intrigued, and uh, one of the speakers got up and was talking about UFOs being possibly connected with the dead, okay? Uh, Dead people turning up as UFO crew members, things that seemed to me to be ludicrous, and uh, UFOs turning up over cemeteries, shining lights down into, into, into new graves, you know, uh, and, and his idea was maybe they, they they transport you to heaven or something. I mean, can you comment on where that those beliefs might have come from? Because it seems to tie right in to some of the folklore that you've mentioned in your book. I absolutely. Uh, it. I had so many. So the original plan. Uh, maybe I should start with this. The original plan was to go down to Rice University and look at the Fondren libraries where all the correspondence to the Streber's was housed and the sort of like. Pick through all that, but this that plan that plan happened in like 2020, so <laughs> it didn't really come to fruition for obvious reasons. Um, but um, I'm of the understanding that there's a lot of correspondence on there describing exactly those things, and even without having access to that, I was able to find these stories um, of people who do encounter dead loved ones, either you know aboard the craft or um, you know 
entities transforming into or out of them, which might be a deception play. It might be screen memory. I'm not writing that off. Of people who see, you know, the dead in their homes after having a UFO sighting. And also people who seem to have some interaction with people whom they never knew, which sort of brings into question, if you see a human-like UFO occupant, could they be someone who is dead that you don't know? There's a really interesting case that I found, I believe out of Nebraska, um, where an individual was provided the name of someone aboard the craft. They introduced themselves, and they looked up the individual, and she was dead, but just as the person had described who was aboard the craft, and uh, they had never had never any, never had any reason to meet. There's also that you know observation that UFOs happen uh, happen to occur quite a bit over the over cemeteries and graveyards. So. There, there, again, th- I've, I've compiled three appendices of these because I had so many different examples. But once you start nesting that within just, you know, uh, this idea that I mentioned before about boats taking people to the afterlife and the manner in which a lot of these psychopomps um, tended to embody a lot of trickster-like aspects. And you can draw a lot of comparisons between psychopomps in general and extraterrestrials. It starts to look like there really is a connection, uh, somehow that they are sort of shepherds from one realm into another. Um, you know, one of the things that I found really interesting was that, you know, the, the number of animals that you see in UFO cases, they're almost invariably animals that we attributed this psychopomp status to, animals that would lead you to the afterlife. I mean, owls are a fine example of that, but more generally, birds and dogs and stuff. So it just, it keeps on, the more you start peeling away that onion, the more you find these similarities, uh, you know. And it's just like the ghost fairy thing um, sort of haunts the background of Passport to Magonia. I would argue that the psychopomp trickster connection haunts the background of George P. Hansen's trickster in the paranormal because, again, a lot of these psychopomps are tricksters. Her- Hermes is a great example of that. Yeah, exactly. One of the things with UFOs is, uh, you know, we're always going on and on about the assumptions people make, whether it be about ghostly phenomena, UFOs, or whatever. You know, UFOs, you know, are, are nuts and bolts craft from other planets. I mean, what else could they be? But yeah. uh, the fact is there are many possible explanations, including the notion that they are living creatures of some kind. All right. Uh, so it seems to me that we, we need to, as we always do, try and define our terms and uh, identify if we can, well, we probably can't, what what a quote-unquote UFO is in any particular case. We think the interpretation could depend on the context of the sighting, etc. So whether when you have lights in graveyards, which we've seen, I mean, I've had them follow me, change color, you know, the, the classic orb kind of mm-hmm. thing. I mean, what is it? Uh, ghost people tell you it's a spirit. If it's high up in the, it's higher up, aha, UFO. Mm-hmm. What say you? I, well, I would first of all argue that we should probably start separating those from sightings of structured craft. I would also say that the interpretation, as you alluded to, is entirely dependent upon the context. You know, if it's in a haunted house, it's a ghost. If it's yeah. in the sky, it's a UFO. But you know, those these 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 light phenomena appear around cryptid sightings as well, and they're a staple of fairy folklore. Oh, yeah. What I find really interesting is the number of traditions across the world, um, and you can even find this in some early Christian writing as well, that sort of conceptualizes the soul as an orb of light or something along those lines. And it's also found in a lot of indigenous lore. So, what do we make of that when we put that up against uh, a lot of these different lights in the sky. An idea that I thought was really interesting to play with was the number of times that these balls of light seem to be harbingers of death. 
And if the soul is an orb of light, and these are people's souls, um, that would tie very much into doppelganger tradition, where if you saw your double, that meant that you were doomed, that you might die. And the idea is that something about what you're going through has separated your soul or a part of your soul. These are older, older polypsychic ideas, but it has separated a part of your soul from yourself and allows you to see it. Well, if the soul is also can appear to, if the soul also can appear to us as a ball of light, then if you see a ball of light, are you seeing your soul? And in that doppelganger tradition, does that sometimes, uh, sort of serve as a harbinger of, of death or doom? I don't know, but it's an interesting idea and you can find, you know, there's connections between people having these sightings of anomalous orbs of light and death everywhere. And that obviously ties into, you know, a, a much older tradition of people interpreting you know, wonders in the sky as harbingers of death and doom, like comets and meteors and asteroids and whatnot. Yeah, that is. You know, I I I, I desperately want to say something, but I would I would be remiss if I did not give you a chance to talk about your latest book, what you're doing, and and giving you a space to kind of do do a little shameless self promotion. Well, I will I will uh, try to do this as quickly as possible so you can so you can make your comment. <laughs> now take um, your time. Uh, I wanted to write one book. It turned out to be two. It's it's uh, sort of an interpretation of the phenomenon, and, but it's one that works for me, um, and I hope to not be dogmatic about it, but it's called The Ecology of Souls, A New Mythology of Death and the Paranormal. Uh, it's split into two volumes, not as a cash grab, but simply because it's so darn big. There is a third volume that is called The Ecology of Souls Companion that contains the three appendices, endnotes, I believe there are about 4,000 endnotes, and the bibliography. Uh, again, that was just a way to save space. If you buy one and two, um, you know, well, you don't have to buy them, but like, if you buy one and two, the PDF of the companion is available on my website for free because if you buy a book, you should have, should have the right to see what informed the book. So yeah, that's the, compa- the companion is available in print form just for people like me who are like really into having actual physical books. Yeah. Um, so the, the third one's sort of uh, optional, and the ebook combines one and two and has all the endnotes in it as well. So that's definitely the thriftiest of the three approaches. Um, but we talk about I talk about everything because so I end up starting to talk about. UFO stuff, but then I'm like, well, we got to bring a lot of other stuff in here too. And that's why this project just sort of ended up blowing up in the manner that it did. So the first book is about near-death experiences, these psychopomp characters that I mentioned and some of the correlations that you can find between them and other paranormal phenomena. Altered states of consciousness, um, shamanic initiation, which is oftentimes a literal or symbolic death and rebirth experience. Um, you know, fairy folklore, uh, and, uh, also, this idea of spirit roads, which is this idea that spirits tend to travel in straight lines and what implications that has for the UFO mystery as well as ley lines and ancient monuments and mountains and, and the, the way that we've incorporated these things. So that's most of book one. And then book two is mostly the UFO slash cryptid book. And that's all about the different sort of ways in which the UFO experience seems to reflect the ideas of book one. And also cryptids a little bit too. You know, cryptids are sort of an awkward little shoehorn in. Um, but there are enough things here and there, enough of a smattering to say that, well, it looks like sometimes this might function in a similar way. And then an epilogue, which is focused on the persistent paranormal motif of headlessness, which was something, again, that I didn't expect to need to talk about, but ended up being in there. So what emerges is, you know, I would hope, my, my, my biggest hope would be that it 
might serve as something alongside ideas like the extraterrestrial hypothesis or the ultra terrestrial hypothesis or the breakaway civilization idea i would i would my biggest hope would be that it would be a model for people to understand this and to test and see if it holds up or it doesn't because it very well might not um I am proud to say that uh, I don't know if I should announce the specific uh, university publicly, but um, if you are reading between the lines, you probably know which one. Um, it has been added. Ecology of Souls has been added to the required reading list for PhD candidates in religion at uh, a private university here in the States. So, wow. you know, I, I, I couldn't really ask for, for more. Um, and it's, it's been well received and I've gotten a lot of support from it. And, uh, you know, a lot of complaining from the people that you would expect would complain. Yes, the ones yeah, that have their minds made up that it's aliens and that, you know. But um, but I think I tried to make a good case that I'm arriving at a lot of these conclusions not from an uninformed position. Well, I have to congratulate you on that, Joshua. That That is a tremendous achievement. And I must say that, and this is from one who is, uh, you know, we don't make our living from the paranormal. I don't trust people who do. It's part of my work as a journalist. All right, and uh, as a journalist, I've been an editor of books, magazines, and newspapers for 42 years, and I have to say that you are a beautiful writer, and uh, I, I, don't, I don't give that uh, compliment readily. Uh, there are so many people today who maybe have good things to say but cannot write. They publish their own books. There's no editing, and it's just painful to read. Yours is just the opposite, so I, I highly recommend these books, and certainly the university uh, would agree. So where do you go from here? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> um, you know, I could I could probably step away from all this and feel like I had said my piece and, you know, not that I think I've solved it, but again, it works for me, which is part of the reason that I got involved in this is because I was sure. trying to figure out how to incorporate this into my faith and my own worldview. Um, but I'm going to start shifting to doing more experiential stuff, getting more boots on the ground, um, doing stuff like that. Uh, there are a couple of uh, YouTube slash video projects that I'm going to be involved with um, that I'll probably be making some announcements about here in the near future. But that, for me, is it, it, it's going to be a while before I put together another book. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, <laughs> although, having said that, I sort of got roped in the other week. Um, my editor, Barbara Fisher, um wants to uh, work on a book with me. So I'm going to try to Excellent. get that. Yeah. I'm going to work on that slowly. I'm not going to try to get, that, get it out as quickly as I did ecology. So. Yeah, it takes us five or six years to write it. Yeah, because it, yeah, it does. You know, it should. You, you put that time into it, and, and it should be uh, reflective of that. So give us your website one more time. Uh, JoshuaCutchin.com, J-O-S-H-U-A-C-U-T-C-H-I-N, just like a cut. On your chin. I've had enough, uh, had enough restaurant reservations mispronounced my name that I figured <laughs> I'd put it through that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, well, uh, I, I try to keep that up to date about appearances and all my interviews that I do as well. So that's your one stop shop. If you're really a masochist and want to listen to me a bunch, that's where to go. Excellent. Well, if we can handle route of it, we can handle Cutchet. <laughs> Fair mm. enough. Yeah, very Fair good. Enough. Like one of our of... favorite guests, Joshua Cushion. Everybody check out the books, check out the website. Thank you so much, Joshua. Thank Talk to you so very much, soon. It was a pleasure. Okay, very good. So we'll get to our announcements. We're going to work in a few extras today. Yes, we we always have some stuff away. some stuff cooking here, and I guess we'll hop right into it. Uh, the Western Connecticut UFO Conference takes place in October this year uh, with both virtual and in-person events uh, sponsored by the Danbury Public Library. Try saying that five times fast. <laughs> uh, it will begin on this show on our, our Sunday, October 16th edition. 
uh, with a very special guest, UFO legend Peter Robbins, longtime friend who will interact with the audience. And on October uh, uh, 22nd, uh, there will be a live and remote uh, presentation at the library. Uh, we plan to present via uh, Zoom on our program Time, time Storms, which we uh, gave at the uh, Exeter UFO Festival. Very, Talk. very popular. Yes, and with yeah. great thanks to the great British researcher Jenny Randalls, who coined the term. Now, uh, I must say that that's, co- that's coming up rather quickly. Uh, that's only a month, less than a month away. And uh, you can go to danburylibrary.org to get information about that. Uh, it will be done by Zoom, so uh, the library organizes that. And what we've done in the past is to have our special guest, in this in this case Peter Robbins. I think one of these is going to be Joshua Kutcher, and um, you know have the have them uh, come in, and uh, there will be interaction possible, but it will be controlled from the library. So uh, it's worked in the past; it's worked very well, and we are looking forward to it. October 27th, uh, 22nd, as Ben was saying, there will be our presentation. But we, we had hoped to be there live, but it's going to be by Zoom. Because I have to be in New Jersey and Ben's going to be in Massachusetts. So we'll uh, we'll deal with it uh, uh, remotely like that. So look for us also at the Para Expo 2023 uh, from aboard the USS Salem in Quincy, Massachusetts, May 19th to 21st. We'll be among the speakers and we'll broadcast live from the ship on Sunday, May 21st. That should be interesting. I am a sucker for naval vessels. Uh, so you can also visit our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find our over uh, 100, uh, 1,100 hours of our regular shows. So if you have a lot of time to kill and you want to you want to listen to us talking and listen to my voice get deeper as time goes on, huh. um, you can find our regular shows and special broadcasts uh, since 2008. From CBS Radio, Achieve Radio, and here on WON, AM, and FM. Uh, you can also hear many of these broadcasts on the major podcast platforms, including um, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Spotify. Now, I've um, received a number of uh, backhanded compliments about our main website, which we don't mention very often, NewEnglandGhosts.com. Somebody wrote in, it's funny, the, the, the best shows have the worst websites, so I guess that was kind of a backhanded compliment. So we are, we are redesigning that site. It's taking a long time. We're putting in new case histories, and uh, because we have the old case histories too, starting for me in 1970 up through uh, all the uh, famous flap areas we talk about, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, uh, and, and this sort of thing. So we hope within the next two months, that a new New England ghost site will will be uh, ready and will be online. So we'll, we'll let you know about that. Uh, so download our show app. We have a show app, believe it or not. It doesn't do much, but it's free. Uh, it's uh, at BehindTheParanormal.com. There's a link to it. It is not in the uh, app stores yet. Uh, it may not be because it's such a pain in the neck to do that. They think you're selling it. There's all kinds of tax paranoia. But you can download it at BehindTheParanormal.com. You can browse our books along with those of our guest co-hosts at our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, as I said, where you can also find more about the show, our many cases, and our public appearances and how to book us. And the website does have a charity page, which we wanted to point out, with links to several good causes we have adopted, including Hope for Hilldale, Hope for Hilldale Cemetery in Haverhill, Massachusetts, USACares.org, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Helping Haiti's Orphans, Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, 
Sisterhood of Ground Zero and the Western Kentucky Tornado Relief Fund. And I have to say that uh, we know the people who um, run those charities, so so they're they're legitimate. What's on the agenda for next week, Ben? Well, next week we have, uh, <clears throat> as we sort of mentioned earlier in the show, that's October 2nd. Yep. Well, welcome back legendary author and experiencer Whitley Strieber, author of Communion and The Day After Tomorrow. And this is his first appearance on the show as a solo guest. And let me just say... I am very excited because I only just recently learned that <laughs> that he was the author of The Day After Tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I actually really I, – I, I'm very excited because when I was in college, I had to attend a seminar on disaster movies, and we watched that in class. And I have so many questions for him. <laughs> so you, you can be starstruck for a change. I can, yes. I'm very excited. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, uh, I don't think we have time for – Sure a we do. We do? Okay. Uh, this is from uh, dear old Albert Einstein. One cannot help but be in awe when contemplating the mysteries of eternity, of life, of the, uh, the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries merely to comprehend a little of this mystery each day. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we'll see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now.